so Jeremiah begins in chapter 3 to not only address the sin of Israel, but also their shamelessness. They're engaged in this sin, and they aren't affected by it. So Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1, they say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Why not that, would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Now, there is a principle uh, that's put forward here in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, actually, where the Lord is saying that if divorce occurs or a separation leading to divorce, that the people should not come back together and be remarried. It's not a biblical law in regard to, you know, absolutely has to be, you know, kept that way. It, it's in order to prevent what was going on by the time Jesus arrives, where people are treating marriage as like a dating process. You know, be with this person for a while, get bored with them, divorce them, marry the next person. And, and they've always got the attitude like, oh, I've never, you know, been intimate outside of marriage. You know, I've been married, you know, a lot over and over. And even to the point of going back to someone they were married to previously. So the Lord is saying you shouldn't treat marriage in you know a light way. You shouldn't be flippant about this relationship. You know, if you come to that point where divorce is necessary, uh, which you know, he gives very limited and confined views to, um, he's saying it, sh it isn't something that you should just go back to. He's m obviously here much more talking about the spiritual relationship with God. Uh, this has little to do. He's taking what's referenced in Deuteronomy regarding marriage, and he's putting the spiritual application to the nation of Israel's relationship with him and saying, you know, th this is something that, you know, isn't done or shouldn't be done. You know, you've gone and... You know, left, and yet he says, you know, even though I have that in the law, even though I have this understanding that I've relayed to you, if you'll repent, I want you back. Return to me. So, so God is not in the place, uh, you know, of judgment where He says, "That's it. I've drawn the line in the sand. You've gone too far. I never want you again. Get away from me." He He's saying right here, "Yet return to me." So the God of the scripture, the God of the law, the God of the Bible is saying, as far as the intimacy of relationship, I want you back regardless of your sins or what, whatever failures you may have had. So then in verse 2, he says, lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see where have you not lain with men by the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness. And you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. This reference to the Arabian is not anything uh, regarding nationality. He's, he's talking about what was common in the day as far as those who prostituted themselves. And he's saying, you, you know, that's what you have done. You've polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore, 
the showers have been withheld and there has been no latter rain. The latter rain comes at the end of the year. They do that dry farming in Israel where they plant the seed in expectation of the moisture. So you have your first season and crop and then they dry farm and plant again with the hope that they'll get the, the latter rains at the end of the season and a second harvest. So, you know, very fruitful. You're not experiencing that because of your sin. That's what's creating this drought and devastation that you're experiencing. I'm withholding the blessing from your life. Uh, you've had a harlot's forehead, and then he gives this sort of explanation. You refuse to be ashamed. You know, forehead or face uh, would, you know, seem to be talking about you, you don't blush. There's there's nothing about your hate behavior that, you know, causes you to, to have that chaste attitude. You go and you behave in a way that's blatantly against me, blatantly, you know, violation of our relationship. And you've got, you know, this bold, prideful face and look about you. You should be broken hearted. Will you not from this time cry to me? My father, uh, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. So it's kind of wordy there at the end, but you know, you have spoken and done evil is the idea of he's calling them back to repentance. And they're saying, yeah, you know, you're our father. You're, you were the guide of our youth. Uh, we definitely want you as our God. We definitely want you in our lives. But then he's saying, but you've done evil things. You, you say one thing, you do another. You know, talk is cheap is what he's saying. You know, James chapter 1, we should be familiar with says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Uh, I often make the point, you know, if, if the magician does a trick and he deceives you and everybody goes, wow, you know, I can't believe what you just did in front of my eyes. Uh, you know, that's one thing. You deceive someone else. If the magician does a trick and he's blown away, then you kind of go, there's something wrong with this guy. He, he needs you know, some help. He's got a mental problem. If he's tricked by his own deception, you're deceiving yourself? You know, I mean, we should be able to recognize, oh, I'm a hypocrite. I'm saying one thing, but I'm doing another. I'm not living according to the very things I see written in God's word. This is exactly what the Lord is saying in Jeremiah chapter 3. Why aren't you doing what you're saying? You're saying it with your mouth, but you're continuing to do the evil. This isn't some minor flippant little thing, you guys. This is Jeremiah who's prophesying to Judah in the south, Jerusalem in particular, right at the end. <laughs> They're about to be taken away captive. This is God's final plea with them. You know, you, you know, you got to, I don't know what you guys are doing sound, doing music, being around bands a lot. I'm, I'm no musician at all, but oftentimes I'll hear the musicians 
playing the guitar, and I can just hear that's out of tune. You know, nobody else might recognize it. I can just tell that, that the, there's a string in there that that is not in harmony with the rest. It's it's not doing its job properly. It's important that we be tuned to God's tenor here. Okay, a lot of this ends up when you read through it, sort of looking like I told you so. It, that's not the attitude at all. God knows what's coming, and he, this is the final plea. He is begging them to get right. you, know, you got to go through all of those positive characteristics which are so prominent in God's personality. God is love. God is light. God is our Father. You know, he, he, he isn't looming over, waiting for, wanting to destroy them. This is the begging careful plea of love that is saying destruction is on its way. You've got to steer off. You've got to stop. Come back to me. You've, you've been miserable. You've been filthy. You've gone and sold yourself. So what? Come back. Leave those things behind and return to me. Right? It doesn't the prophet tell us that he's pleading like, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, you know, we'll make them as white as snow. We'll make them as white as the finest wool if you'll just come back. So, so be sure that you've got your heart and mind tuned properly to the attitude and the heart of the Lord. Because his, his desire, his thought, his process is restoration, salvation, and love. So continuing there in verse 6, it says, the Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree and played the harlot. There's no place that she hasn't done this. She's been engaged in idolatry. She's worshipped everywhere. Uh, you know, other than... than uh, it's right there. Uh, she's worshipped, you know, other gods everywhere. Uh, you know, this isn't like, you know, a, a one-time thing or an isolated incident in time or geography. Uh, the Lord is saying, you've polluted the whole land. You've polluted yourself in every place. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So, so this is the, what I was relaying as we prayed. You know, if you can't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Right? You, you've got the ten tribes in the north uh, that you know, are known as Israel. And you've got these two tribes in the south, Judah. And the ten tribes in the north have continued in their sin and their idolatry through all the prophets' warnings until they were taken away captive by the Assyrians, conquered, destroyed, and taken away as captives. And the Lord is now saying to the two tribes remaining in the south in the capital of Jerusalem, look, you know, your your you know your treacherous sister, you need to learn. You need to make sure 
that you, you know you don't do the same things they've done. When I saw that that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? If we truly have that reverential respect for who God is, it is going to incorporate fear. You know, people have an attitude like, oh, no, God is always just love and kindness and softness and, you know, pink fluffy cloud. God is also judgment and discipline and correction and at times a sword, right? A sword proceeds from his mouth. I don't want a taste of that at all. I want, I want his mercy and his grace. And each one of us should. But I need to have that fear of the judgment that potentially he can wield when uh, we've pushed the limits. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry. You know, she's just flipping. She didn't care. She just goes and does whatever she wants to. That she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees, you know, the idols that they made, the altars that they built, the sacrifices that they gave to uh, those, you know, false gods. Ten, and yet for all her treacherous sister Judah was not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. So, yeah, you got Josiah. Yeah, you got some reforms going on. You got some things that look like godliness. You know, you can say to the world, "Oh, you know, we're the religious capital of Israel." You know, you know Jerusalem. You know what they even refer to it as. You know, the holy city, right? It's not a holy city if the people within it aren't holy. You know, it's pavement and stones and sticks and dirt. It's you know that doesn't make it holy. You have to behave in a way that is designated and consecrated to the Lord. You're you're saying, oh yes, you know, we're holy. Oh yes, we're the religious center. He's saying, oh, you say all those things, but that's just for a pretense. You're trying to convince people that that's actually where you're at, and you're not at all. Three eleven then says, the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself. More righteous than treacherous Judah. Oh, that's quite a statement since they're already conquered and taken away. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. And you have to acknowledge your sin, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities, foreign gods, under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. You know, the Lord still here, just pleading with them, begging them to come back and get right. Of course, we know First John one nine that says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. This is actually a point that's fairly important because a lot of times what we do is convince ourselves that what we're doing is somehow not a sin. You know, we, we, we put the cutesy on it. You know, try to play down the gravity of whatever we're involved in. You know, give explanation. Oh, sure, no, I understand that, you know, it says I shouldn't do that. But, I mean, do you understand the things that have occurred to me that cause me to behave this way? You know, as though it's not really my fault. You know, it's someone else's fault. You know, it's what my mom did to me or my dad did to me or, you know, what my teachers did to me or what circumstances or just life in general brings me to this place. So therefore, I, I pretty much have to. So it's not really a sin. You know, okay, it's a sin, but, you know, in this case, you, you're sort of giving yourself a pass. And the Lord is saying, no, if you acknowledge your iniquity, right? If we'll just be as the man that went in to pray, he got the Pharisee so full of himself. Oh, thank you, Lord. I'm not like this heathen, you know, this tax collector over here. I pray. I fast. I'm so religious you wouldn't believe it, is what he's saying. And the Lord is saying, I'm not impressed with that. The one who goes in and just beats his chest and says, oh, God, I'm such a wretched sinner. Forgive me. Forgive me for who I am and what I've done. I mean, it requires changing. You can't just go in and confess and confess and confess, right? The one who confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. He'll leave these things behind. So, you know, this acknowledgement is a big part of God's restoration in our lives. Look at verse 14. Again, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord. For I am married to you. Oh, bill of divorcement mentioned earlier. Here, no, I, we still have a relationship, God is saying. I'm still affixed to you in the most personal way possible. Right? The deepest relationship you can have in your human existence is marriage. And, and he's saying, I'm married to you. God is saying, you're my people. We, we have that depth of intimacy and relationship. You know, return. Come back. I'll take you. One from a city. Two from a family. I will bring to Zion. The remnant. However many. You know, here and there. And those that will turn to him. I'll take you back. I will give you shepherds according to. Note this. I underline. Shepherds according to my heart. I'll give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You know, I immediately thought when I was reading this of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul tells the young pastor, Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will, according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Oh, I don't like this guy. Oh, he's just too harsh. I don't like that. I don't like that guy. Oh, oh this is a comfortable message. Oh, this is easy to take. Oh, I like, oh, you know, just something that is non-confrontational. It's worded so eloquently. It just, you walk out every time just feeling really good about yourself. 
that's you got to know that's wrong, right? Because you live with yourself every day. You know there are things we know we have to be confronted and changed. Uh, you know, the, the Lord is saying, I'm going to give you shepherds according to my heart. Israel's full of prophets at this point in time, and there's only one true prophet at this point in time, right? There, you know, you read some of these occasions where you got Micaiah coming and and speaking the truth to Jehoshaphat and Ahab, right? And and you got five hundred prophets there that are saying the exact opposite thing. Five hundred prophets that are prophesying falsely, telling the king, "You're going to win, man. You're going to have victory." Micaiah basically says, "You'll be dead before the day is over." You know, you're not going to survive this occasion, pal. You know, the prophets get all mad, and he then says, look, you know, it's going to be bad for you, too. You know, I'm going to be the survivor in this situation. You can brutalize me all you want. Uh, I'm the one who's standing here prophesying the truth of God's word. You know, whatever it may be, the message may be, it's going to come from the mouth of the Lord, not going to be a, a message that the people want and enjoy. It's going to be a message that confronts us at times, right? It may be encouragement. It may be comfort, right? I mean, here's the prophet saying, you're filthy, rotten, sinful people, but if you'll just come back, God will accept you. I, I find that an encouraging message. I find that a very gracious and loving message. But at the same time, if you're in the depths of your sin, that's not a message you want to hear. You know, the Lord saying, hey, you're filthy. Oh, I can't believe he spoke to me that way. I can't believe he called me that. This is what the Lord is saying. You know, the shepherds that I send, they're going to have my heart. They're going to have my message. They're going to say the things that I want. Look at verse 16. It says, then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more. The ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall, it, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. I think that this is actually a prophetic message regarding the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Because uh, we see clearly that the temple is going to be rebuilt and that the sacrifices are going to be restored. So we can fairly safely assume that an, an Ark of the Covenant will be in place inside the temple during that time. And yes, we know that to be the fact because the Antichrist will interrupt those sacrifices and that worship at the three and a half year mark cease the sacrifices and demand to be worshipped as God himself. So it's fairly safe to assume that they either have the ark or they're going to reconstruct the ark and put it inside that temple. But then there will come a point where they won't have it. It won't be remembered. It won't come to mind. It'll be unnecessary, right? The mercy seat sits atop the ark of the covenant where the blood of the lamb is poured out and God accepts the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Well, guess what? Jesus' throne is that mercy seat where his blood was offered up to the Lord and 
the mercy of God was extended to anyone that would embrace it. I mean, you know, it's a shadow and a type, right? It's a symbol of the ark was the symbol of God's throne, God's mercy. Once you've got Jesus on his throne, you don't really need the symbol anymore. You don't really need the representation anymore. So it seems to be that they're, you know, speaking forward prophetically about, you know, what will eventually come. And that will be a you know, much greater fulfillment than any, you know, Ark of the Covenant and temple that may be constructed between here and that point in time. 3 verse 17 at that time, Jerusalem shall be the throne of God, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Oh, I long for that day. Just, just that the dictates of my evil heart are not ruling over me and leading me, that I'll be able to go and look upon the throne of God and be led by him. 18, in those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. The, the reuniting of north and south, all 12 tribes bound together under God. They shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to their fathers. Certainly there's no division in the land today, according to tribes or even politics. It's one nation inside Israel. And you know we look forward to when it's you know fully complete and completely united under Jesus Christ seated upon that throne. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage, the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. So the restoration of the people brought back in like children will call upon God as father and be bound to him as though they were family and husband and wife. The great bond of the family and, and uh, a man and his bride. A voice was heard on the desolate heights weeping in supplication of the children of Israel for they have perverted their ways. They have forgotten the Lord, their God. And the mourning, the suffering that they're going through, God tells us the reason is you, you've departed from God. That's the whole summary. So, you know, take a moment and think about your life and, you know, the struggles we may have and examine whether it's a result of our departing from God. Because if, if we're facing very challenging things, sometimes it's, you know, like Job. Here's a man who was functioning in righteousness and the devil just straight up attacks him. So, okay, you have that. But, you know, what about those occasions where it's really just the fruit of our sin? You know, the things we've done or neglected to do that have now come home to roost and we're having to deal with them. That's... You know what the Lord is saying here, the weeping, the supplication of the children of Israel, they've perverted their way. They've, you know, forgotten the Lord their God. Oh, you don't have to, maybe you can't see that in your own life because you're walking with the Lord and experiencing his blessing and his pleasure, but you just look outside your four walls to the nation that surrounds us and the things we're suffering right now are a result of 
we as a people departing from worshiping the Lord, throwing God out and not allowing him to be part of the public place and the politics. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. If you'll return, the Lord will heal it. Right? I don't know about you, but I've often, you know, uh, you know, had times where uh, you know I return to the Lord, and then you've got that, those things in your mind, and you're just wishing God. I wish that wasn't there. You, you return to the Lord. You walk with Him, and over time. Those things do get washed away. He does heal us. Those things do depart. You don't have to walk around with a burdened conscience. You don't have to walk around with a scarred memory. Christ will take that away. You know, the renewing of our mind by the washing of the water of his word. Indeed, we do come to you. For you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hope for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains, you know, the Golan Heights. Oh, we had the high ground. We could see our enemies. You know, this is a, you know, makes us a you know, great military prowess. We're able to you know, swoop down on our, your mountains aren't going to serve you at all. All your fortifications, God is saying, that's not really what was protecting you. Yeah, I gave you those locations. Yes, I allowed you to have those fortifications. I'm the one who was your protection. I'm the one who made those fortifications, uh, you know, trustworthy and, and helpful. Truly in vain you've hoped for salvation from the hills and from the multitude of the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel, for shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters, nothing left for inheritance. Sin has consumed it. You know, the, the way that the people have wasted away in their sin. You know, it should be, he's saying, that you know, generation upon generation is building that inheritance and building that heritage. And, you know, it's the idea of families of greater and greater wealth as fathers leave for sons and those sons become fathers who leave for their sons and, you know, so on and so forth until the heritage is abundant and wealthy, and God saying, no, you've erased all that. <laughs> you rejected me and reduced yourself to zero. Yet you have nothing you know, because of it. I'm the one. Shame has devoured the labor of your fathers from your youth, their flocks, their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame, and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. What a summary of why they're suffering as a nation. You know, it's only the prophet Jeremiah who's making these open admissions at this point. They as a people and a nation are not. Continues in chapter 4 by saying, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear, the Lord lives in truth and judgment and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. If you'll return, you get blessed, and everyone around you will be blessed through you, by you. They'll be able to celebrate in your relationship with the Lord. 
you'll be an example to them. The fruitfulness in your life will provide for them, and, and you know they'll be able to glean from you. Without the Lord, you're void of any benefit. Four three, for thus the Lord of uh, you know excuse me for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, the untilled ground, and do not sow among thorns. You might want to underline that. Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. You know, the, the judgment, the fury of God, the wrath of God is because of their sin. God doesn't weigh that out on people for no cause and no reason. When, when you can look at it and say, oh, that's the judgment of God. It's a judgment because the people are living in rebellion and rejecting him. You know, this statement in the beginning where he says, break up your fallow ground, that immediately reminded me of uh, what was being said by Jesus in the parable of the sower. You know, he goes out and he scatters the seed, and we have the description of the seed that fell by the wayside, and then you have the seed that fell, you know, uh, amongst the stones. You have the seed that fell among the thorns, as it says in verse 3, and then you get the explanation in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, that says these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, this is one area that a lot, a lot, a lot of Christians fall to and they don't even realize it. You know, they'll, they'll look around at others who you know have evil influences in their lives which just snatch the seeds of God's word away and don't produce fruit you know they have others that are you know stony and rocky described as shallow ground they spring up quickly yeah I want to get involved with that and then die off quickly because they have no root they have no depth the ones that fall amongst the thorns the deceitfulness of riches the cares of the world so many people you know, you know, let their relationship with the Lord die out because they're like, well, I'm, how am I going to plan for my retirement? You know, how, how am I going to take care of this need or that? I'm going to have to go to school. I'm going to have to, and they pursue the things of this world. And, and as a result, the fruitfulness of the Lord dies out. N you know, nothing against having riches, nothing against having education any of those things, it's, it's when it chokes out the relationship with God. Can, that can be done. You know, if you can recognize that it is, then it's time to sacrifice those things to the Lord and, and recognize, no, I need the fruitfulness of the Lord in my life first. Most importantly, if I get to you know add other things to that, wonderful. But I cannot let the cares of these things choke it out. So even here in the Old Testament, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns the things that would choke out 
a relationship with the Lord. Now he makes that second statement in verse 4 about circumcising their hearts. And any of us that have studied the scripture you know, for a period of time might recall Romans chapter 2, begins at verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, the actual circumcision of the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, a circumcision that is of the heart, in spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Oh, he's very religious. Oh, look, he wears a cross. Oh, look, he's got Christian bumper stickers. Oh, he only listens to Christian music. Got all the stuff on the outside that men can see and go, wow, there's a really religious person. Inwardly, all of the fruit, or the, not the fruit, but the works of the flesh. Uh, you, you have to circumcise your own heart. Did you notice that in verses, you know, chapter, Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4? He's telling us to till up our ground. Get rid of the thorns. Weed. Break up the ground. Get the stones out. You know, make some depth to your life. Break up those paths where people have walked through and packed down and you know, caused it to be the seed couldn't even take root there, right? You know, those relationships we had in our youth where people were telling us things about God and religion and the Bible that just packed an area so hard that we couldn't see a fruitfulness to the Lord. This stuff's got to go. I've talked to many people that can recognize, right, i got pathways in my heart that prevent the growth. I've got stones, shallow places. I've got thorns that choke. So, but there's nothing I can do. I'm just waiting for God. Get your pickaxe out. Start breaking up the ground. Start, you know, you've seen the blueberry fields, right? Those mountains of stone. They've gone through the blueberry field and they've taken all the stones out. Now they're getting rid of the stones. They're ripping out the things. Circumcise your own heart. Cut the flesh away. Be sensitive to God. You know, actually go through the process of working on these things the Lord is telling you to do. Now look at chapter 4, verse 5. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. It's on the way. Don't sit around and act like, yeah, well, that's probably going to happen. No, like right now, react as though it's upon you. The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land Desolate, your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. You're not going to turn to me. You're not going to repent. You're not going to answer my call and come. Then I'm going to unleash that lion from the north, Nebuchadnezzar. And he's coming for you. 
you, you, you need to get inside the protective walls of the city. If you're not going to get inside the protective barrier of my arms and my love and a relationship with me, then brace yourself with everything you've got because the destroyer is on his way. It's interesting to me that Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as the destroyer of nations here and Lucifer is also referred to as the destroyer who comes to steal, kill, and destroy the, the thief. So, 4.9, it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish, just melt. The heart of the princes, the priests, shall be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. Why are, why are the prophets going to wonder? Because they're false prophets. <laughs> going to be blown away, because they haven't listened to the voice of the Lord. Now, then I said, oh, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people, and Jerusalem saying, you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Now, make no mistake, the translation into English didn't do a good job here because it would be more literally translated that the false prophets have deceived the hearts of the people by saying, you shall have peace. Okay, the Lord allowed the deception to take place, but God didn't put that message in the mouth of the prophets, and neither did he himself deceive the people. They, they don't turn to him. They're not coming back. They aren't restoring their relationship. So in that end, God has deceived them, and he's let them go. He's let them go off into their self-deception, off into listening to the false prophets. You're not going to search the scripture, not going to know what the Lord has said, then God is going to let you have that way. You're going to be able to go a long ways down that road. And the Targum paraphrases that the verse that way, saying, And I said, Receive my supplications, O Lord God, for behold, the false prophets deceive this people and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace. So, you know, a more accurate translation, that the false prophets are the deceivers. 4.11, at that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse, a wind too strong for those who are these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. You know, at times wind is useful to the nation of Israel. Right? It brings rain. It, it is used for winnowing out the chaff so that they can do their harvest. It, you know, wind is not a bad... This windy, Sam, no, it's going to be destructive. It's not something you're going to be able to bear. God is going to call for it, and it's going to dry you up, parch you, suck the life right out of your nation and out of you as a people. Behold, he shall come upon, up like clouds in his chariots, like a whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. Again, Nebuchadnezzar, the destroyer. O oh, Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims affliction from Mount Ephraim. 
make mention to the nations, yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and raise their voice against the cities of Judah like keepers of a field there against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Your ways and your doings have produced these things for you. Hear that again, right? Your ways and your doings have produced these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter, because it reaches to your heart or to your hearts. Dan was north of uh, Jerusalem. Between Dan and Jerusalem are the mountains of Ephraim. Uh, these would be the first places attacked by the Chaldeans when they came. And the rumor from these locations would show that the land was indeed being invaded. You know, as Jerusalem begins to get news, oh, Dan has been taken, and now the mountains of Ephraim. And so, in other words, I told you to brace yourself. I told you to go into the fortified cities, and now you're getting word that Dan has fallen, and Ephraim has fallen, and now it's coming for you. They're dropping down out of the north. That statement that watchers come from a far country, uh, this was a specific statement about the people who would come and besiege a city. The watchers were the ones who would preemptively come and build the siege mounds and build the machines of war, the, you know, the trebuchet or the catapult, and they would set up and ready for when the army would arrive in force and then collapse the city and take it uh, as their own. So, you know, here you're going to see it come down out of Dan and through the mountains of Ephraim, and then you're going to recognize, oh, these are the guys in preparation for the siege that are going to lay waste to this city. And, and indeed, it did, did unfold that way. 419, oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war, destruction upon destruction, is cried for the whole land is plundered suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment you know the very door of my house how long will i see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet the invading armies our trumpets are sounding to a lot you know to alarm to their trumpets are sounding to to uh you know give signals and directions for the invasion our standards our flags are flying in, you know, defensive pride. Their flags are flying as they've come out in pride to conquer and destroy. You know, you never want to see all of this going on in your backyard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, well, how, when are we going to stop hearing the alarm and the call? And the, right? I mean, you turn on the news and there's, you know, another shooting and another act of terrorism and another, and you just feel like, when is this going to stop? It's going to stop when the people's hearts return to the Lord and not until. You can legislate whatever you want to. It's not going to change a blessed thing until the people's hearts turn to the Lord. 22, for my people are foolish. They've not known me. They are silly children and they have not understood. They are wise to do evil. 
But to do good, they have no knowledge. <laughs> you know, they can tell you all kinds of ways to do really bad things. They've got all kinds of plans and imaginations. You just got to mention something wicked to them and they think of a better way to do that. <laughs> and he's saying, but as far as how to worship, worship, what do you mean worship? Like, what does that mean? Like, 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 like to be obsessed with something? They don't know how to do anything good. Their skill is in wickedness. Take this in contrast. Consider what Romans chapter 16 verse 19 says from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Version, Your obedience is known to all as he speaks to the believers in Rome. So that I rejoice over you. This is Paul speaking to the believers there. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I, I want you to, to know how to do good things. I want you to know how to be a believer and walk properly in worship and all that is right before God. As to the wicked things of the world, I would hope that you would have no knowledge of that. That you, that you wouldn't know how to do bad things. Somebody might mention it to you and you'd be left going, well, what do you mean? I don't know. How, how could I? What is that? You don't understand what is evil. You only understand what is good. What, what a wonderful endorsement Paul gives to those people in Rome. You guys are skilled and well-known. You know, believers everywhere hear about you. And, you know, uh, what a great thing. You've departed from evil. Don't even know how to participate in it. And yet you know how to worship and do what is good. You know, I would hope that would be an endorsement of every believer that they're yeah, naive to evil things and yet uh, very uh, educated and knowledgeable of that which is good. Back in Jeremiah chapter 4, looking at verse 23, I beheld the earth and indeed it was without form and void and the heavens, they were had no light. And I beheld the mountains, mountains and indeed they trembled and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld and indeed there was no man and all the birds of heaven had fled, and I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. This certainly applies to, you know, the entire nation of Israel, north and south, the ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, as they were ruined by war and invaded by the Assyrians, and then later here as what's going on with the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians, laid waste, right? The people taken away captive, 70 years inside Babylon, eventually released, they come back to just desolation. You know, the, the city lies in ruins, everything has 70 years of overgrowth when they begin to unearth the building materials, everything's destroyed, burned with fire, they can't even use the rocks that have been left, they've been cracked and split uh, because of the heat of the intensity of the war and the siege. It took place. So certainly it has that application there, but it seems to point further forward to the wrath of God that's going to take place during the seven years of tribulation on the earth. Jesus said if he didn't shorten the days, put a limit to it of seven years, no flesh would have survived. All of humanity would have been wiped out. You know, I, I, you've heard it from me countless times. I'll say it again. First three and a half years 
of that tribulation. One quarter of the world's population is wiped out. That's all of South America, Central America, North America, and Western Europe gone. You know, there, there are descriptions of the dead being so numerous they can't bury them. Bodies just mounded up everywhere. Horrendous. Horrendous insight. You catch a glimpse of that in Revelation chapter 16, two verses, 19 and 20. Great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath, God's judgment upon them. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. God is literally going to change the geography of earth. Or, you know, right after that in 20, verse 21, it says that there will be 100-pound hailstones that are falling upon men and killing them. This is going to be a horrendous place to be during that seven years of tribulation. Back to Jeremiah, verse 27, For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate. Yet I will not make a full end, for this shall be or excuse me, for this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken. I have purposed and will not relent, nor will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up on the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken and not a man shall dwell in it. They will flee to the wilderness they're going to run away. Those are, you know, the few safe places when things like this happen. Abandon the cities. Because, you know, the invading armies are trying to conquer the people. Where is the concentration of people? Inside the cities. You know, the rural, rural areas you can mop up later. Well, the problem is the people that live in the cities don't know how to live in the wilderness. So it ends up being a very treacherous thing. Uh, Jeremiah is wildly criticized because he's telling the people by the end of his prophecy, you need to surrender to Babylon. You need to give yourself up to them. It's your only hope for survival. You can't flee. You can't avoid this whole thing. You know, they're going to go out into the thickets and into the rocks and into the hillsides in uh, order to try and survive. 4 verse 30, and when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, put on your makeup, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. You turn to Egypt, he accused them of earlier. You know, you've turned to these other nations, and now what are they doing? They're forsaking you. They're abandoning you in your problem. And then they're even joining the forces that are attacking you. And, and that's the way it goes. You know, when we turn to and rely upon things other than the Lord, it's so regretful in the end. Well, we end up suffering at the very hands of the things that we've entrusted ourselves to. So it says here in verse 31, For I have heard a voice of a woman in labor, the anguish as of her who brings forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spreads her hands saying, woe is me now for my soul is weary 
because of murderers. You know, certainly, uh, you know, where we are in history, where these people were in history, was horrendous to think about. But here's the thing. The invasion, particularly of Babylon, that was coming to them, and what is right in front of us as a nation and as a people, as far as God's judgment, has to take place. For these people at this time, they've got to be delivered from their idolatry. They're going to go into captivity, and when they come back, they've still got sin. They've got things they've got to deal with, with them and God. But you never see them wholesale return to idolatry as a nation. They're done with that. Once they come back from Babylon, no thank you very much. They don't want anything to do with idolatry. They still struggle with materialism and money. Isn't that interesting? Uh, but they don't struggle with actually setting up idols and forsaking God and worshiping them. Still got the wickedness of their heart to contend with, but they're cured of that idolatry. Uh, our nation, similar thing. The forsaking of God, the turning to other things for answers. Uh, we're on the cusp of experiencing God's judgment. You know, what, what's happening in our nation now that's you know, positive, the things that are going on around the world that are positive in light of Christianity? Oh, great. But I can tell you right now that the wickedness that is in men's hearts is going to swell again. And we're going to see our people fall if there's not you know, a wholehearted repentance and return to the Lord. There's no avoiding it. Uh, the Lord here, uh, this pain that's described as childbirth, does it make you think of what Jesus was saying there as he gives the Olivet Discourse? Right? Matthew, you might want to turn with me just to close this study, chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 4 to begin with. It says, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. It's going to give birth to his kingdom is what's going to happen. Right? Right there, seven years is going to emerge and you're going to see overwhelming convulsive pain take place for seven years. And then it emerges out the other side into the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ and him seated upon the throne. We've got to go through the pain in order to get to the child, the child of God, the birthing of a nation, the birthing of a kingdom, right? Here we are. Yesterday was Christmas, right? You could wish that maybe Christmas would come earlier. You've got to go through Thanksgiving to get to Christmas. Little kids just anxious for, oh, we're nearing it, we're approaching soon, it's right around the corner. You've got to go through the precursor things. You've got to go through labor in order to get the child. 
You got to go through these birth pains in order to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I long for it. Don't long for the pain that is ahead of us, but I do long for the resulting kingdom which will deliver us all. Amen. Amen. So we'll pick up at chapter five next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are grateful and thankful for your word and your love, your graciousness in our lives and to us as a people, as your creation. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each of our hearts. I know that much of this applies to each of us individually. Help us to be a surrendered people. Help us to be that one here and those two over there who are truly turning around and coming back to you and waiting for your fulfillment in our lives. Accomplish what you want to in our hearts and minds. Deliver us from our wicked selves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.